Hi, this is Katie here, and with just a quick note before we start. Uh, the episode you're about to listen to is about the continuing fallout from the New York Times' decision to publish an opinion column by Senator Tom Cotton that advocated for sending the National Guard into American cities uh, to quell the ongoing civil unrest, um, whether those cities and states wanted this or not. Almost immediately after we recorded the episode, the editor of the Times opinion section, James Bennett, uh, stepped down from the paper, which, as you will notice, uh, the one of us who is always right predicted would happen. This is like the third time there's been an update to a story after we recorded. So if everyone could just like, I don't know, let us know first before you break a story, we'd really appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Katie, how are you doing this fine Sunday? Oh, pretty good. You know, just increasingly concerned we're in the midst of a mass hysteria or cultural revolution. How are you? Yeah, similar. I um, went for a nice run yesterday, ate some good pizza recently, but the complete collapse of any sort of institutional authority is disturbing. But you know what? It may have been time. Like, don't you think institutional authority had a good, uh, what, <laughs> three-year run? And now that I think about it, did we ever really have institutional authority? Uh, maybe during the Obama administration. I, I think I, I trusted institutions then. Maybe I was a fool to do so. The extent to which it feels like there is a major sort of epistemic or cultural crackup going on in our circles and the circles adjacent to our circles is, I don't know, it's hard to explain this to people because externally, if you look at the country, what's going on is a pandemic mixed with a massive protest movement. And I think maybe I'll play the sort of identity card. If you're not in our circles, some of the stuff going on is a little bit obscure, but it is very unusual what's going on. And people at many media outlets are, in addition to their, you know, um, feelings about the awfulness of George Floyd's murder. And uh, the people in my circle are mostly sympathetic to the protesters, but they're also very worried about media and about institutions. And I, I take it your people feel the same way. You know, I actually don't know that that's true. I feel like I'm on on the outside looking in right now. I, I tweeted this yesterday, but I, I, I think I spend like half the day worried that I'm either in a cult or that everyone around me is in a cult and I'm the only one who can see it. Um, the dialogue around me seems to be, oh, well, I guess that's not entirely true. Like on Twitter, I follow a, a pretty diverse, like ideologically diverse group of people. And there's a lot of concern about institutions, especially right now, public health and, and the uh, rapid message shift. But my the the sort of friend groups that I grew up at grew up with are basically queer punks, and um, they maybe have no trust in institutions, but what they do have have faith in is that everything that's happening right now with the civil unrest is 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 positive, um, and that this movement is going to lead to to uh, to great things in society, including perhaps the abolition of police forces, um, and. Yes, I am not convinced that the outcome of what's happening right now is going to be um, on on the next. At some point, we should go deeper on that because I think I'm I'm overall more optimistic than you. But oh, you definitely are. Yeah, um, I guess this episode we're going to for patrons later on. We're going to talk about the most important story in the world, which is J.K. Rowling's heel turn. She is now an enemy of oppressed people, trans people in particular. She is a turf. She is a bigot. She must be stopped. She also has fuck you money so she can tweet whatever she wants. Mm -hmm. She came out. She she sort of came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, or at the very least, doubled down and emphasized stuff she had already said. That will be the subject of our patrons episode. We'll record right after this. www.patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Uh, what are the other... People can get in touch with us by, by coming to our houses in the middle of the night and knocking on the door, throwing a brick through the window. 
Yeah. You could also email us. Maybe that'd be preferable. Blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. Twitter at the bar pod, Reddit, blocked and reported. What am I missing? Um, are we on MySpace, Facebook, Instagram? I was going to say, I have an old live journal still up. I oh, think- God. Jesse, you should not have said that. Now I'm going to go try to find it. But I don't even remember the name. I also, I think it was when I was, was a little bit of a late bloomer. So I think it was probably Were 17. You? I'm shocked. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah you're shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Herzog. Uh, it was probably like really oblique references to girls. Just like, uh-huh. not like specific girls, but just as this sort of distant abstract concept. <laughs> Not Wait. was not yet the ladies' man I am today. I'm glad that you have bloomed. Oh, I'm a fucking flower. Okay. <laughs> um, the main thing we're going to talk about today is the borderline civil war. Even calling it that, of course, is now seen as offensive at the New York Times over Barry Weiss's tweets. I think most people listening to this know who Barry Weiss is. She is a I don't know what she is politically. She's centrist. I'm not even sure I'd call her conservative. She's definitely... That, she calls herself a classical liberal. Uh, she's a staffer for the Opinion Pages, an editor and writer. Open secret, not even really a secret, reviled by a vast swath of time staff, particularly younger ones. If you listen to our last episode, you know there was a big controversy last week about uh, the paper's decision to run a column by Senator Tom Cotton saying that the troops should be sent in to quell unrest. As that internal controversy was peaking at the Times, Barry Weiss did a tweet storm. So we're recording this June 7th, and on June 4th, Barry Weiss tweeted tweeted the following. I'm just going to read the whole thing because I think in these situations, we should make sure we're reacting to to what she actually said or what the person actually said. Here we go. The civil war inside the New York Times between the mostly young wokes and the mostly 40-plus liberals is the same one raging inside other publications and companies across the country. The dynamic is always the same. The old guard lives by a set of principles we can broadly call civil libertarianism. They assume they shared that worldview with the young people they hired who called themselves liberals and progressives. But it was an incorrect assumption. The new guard has a different worldview, one articulated best by John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. They call it safetyism, in which the right of people to feel emotionally and psychologically safe trumps what were previously considered core liberal values, like free speech. Perhaps the cleanest example of this dynamic was in 2018, when David Remnick, under tremendous public pressure from his staffers, disinvited Steve Bannon from appearing on stage at the New Yorker Ideas Festival. But there are dozens and dozens of examples. I've been mocked by many people over the past few years for writing about the campus culture wars. They told me it was a sideshow, but this was always why it mattered. The people who graduated from these campuses would rise to power inside key institutions and transform them. One thing I quickly just want to say before we dive into this conversation is that that there's an awkward element of it for me and for a lot of commentators and would-be commentators, and that is New York media is incredibly incestuous. I've met Barry maybe three or four times. You've you've met her at least once, right? Yeah, um, we've hung out a couple times. Okay. Yeah, same boat for me. Maybe three or four, maybe five. Um, I also like I'm I'm friends with one of the sort of most visibly anti-Barry people, not close friends, but, you know, someone I see once in a while, various other players. There's like some level of personal involvement I felt like I should acknowledge. And and the other thing is like the professional risks of publicly weighing in on either side of this. It's sort of a, a catch 22. Do you want to come in publicly against the editorial page, which at some point you will be pitching something to if you're many journalists, or do you want to come in? against this big swelling mass of of young journalists saying that the times page aired horribly i i 
for different people, that calculus is going to be different. But I just want people to understand that if you go on Twitter and you see what journalists are saying, that is a tiny slice of the overall opinion on this because many people do not want to chime in, right? Right. Uh, I'm in the the fortunate position of being utterly convinced that I'm never going to have a job again. So um, I can say whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it is like, it's sort of every everyone secretly or not so secretly wants to work at the times i i do think like from what i've seen of the culture there it's maybe not a particularly welcoming time to be a whatever we're called like a heterodox i don't like heterodox whatever we are they don't like that and it doesn't matter genius genius (laughs) they're scared of they are they are they are scared of geniuses they're also scared of our courage, which, you know, talking about this on yes. a podcast versus running into the Bernie World Trade Center as a firefighter, who can say which is braver, really? You know, some heroes wear scrubs and some heroes wear podcast headphones. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that because I, I do think it's skewing the public discussion. Like, it would be silly to say journalists are, are nervous to chime in on this because so many are and mostly on the side of the staffers because that seems to be the the trajectory of history at the moment. But there's like the back channels on the stuff are, are off the charts at the moment. Right. If you defend Barry, you put you basically put a, a bullseye on your back. Do you remember that piece that Eve Pizer um, wrote with Barry last year, a couple years ago? Eve Pizer is a, a, she was in very good standing among lefties. She does good stuff. Right. Um, she like a vice journalist, basically. I think she's independent now, but I think she's former vice. Yeah. She, she and Barry co-wrote a piece for the times about how they'd been jawing at each other on Twitter and thought they hated each other. And then they hung out and liked each other. And this alone caused a major shitstorm among Brooklyn leftists who thought that it's hard to even suss out the reasoning. I think that the thinking is Barry's views are so evil that even suggesting she's personally a good person causes harm, right? Right. And so Eve, as far as I can tell, got basically excommunicated from from her networks. Um, and I might be overstating that. I'm, I'm not actually sure. But I, the reaction was not positive. She was basically cons- like considered complicit in Barry's crimes because she said that Barry was nice. And Barry is very nice. She's sort of a mensch. That's sort um, of the irony of this is like it's it's known that she's a very – I mean, whatever. You can make whatever, like, uh, Hitler. Some people found Hitler. Hitler was nice. (laughs) Exactly. Barry Weiss is, like, when you uh, see what is said about her, you know, maybe this is naive on my part, but you you would sort of expect someone like that to be a dick in real life. But she is sort of, um, you know, charismatic and charming and nice. But if she held views that I thought were murderously evil, I wouldn't bring up her niceness because that's not the point. But there's, like, a whole... Barry discourse. I mean, you want to talk about how solipsistic New York journalism is. Like the subject of Barry Weiss is just probably discussed more internally than like the subject of police violence, frankly. Do you remember when it was uh, revealed that Barry Weiss used to date Kate McKinnon? Oh, yeah. This was like people. So Barry Weiss, like in college or maybe after college, was girlfriends with the much loved Kate McKinnon from SNL. And people just had a shitstorm. It was like they were going to fucking cancel Kate McKinnon for dating Barry. And her and her current partner, Nellie Bowles, is, I think, in good standing um, at the time. She's a, like a very progressive tech reporter. Um, and I, I wonder uh, I wonder what it is what it is like to, you know, sort of be in that position where you're dating what many of your colleagues think is the enemy. The um, there's so many like layers to the social bullshit, because like what Eve Pizer is good friends with my friend, who's also one of the chief public Barry antagonists. So it's like, it's all gets very, like, basically, I understand why people hate journalists. We sound horrible. 
Oh my God. I mean, just the fact that we're talking about this is just terrible. But yes. I also, and, and it's gossipy bullshit, but I, it's also like fun and interesting. Well, it's fun and interesting. And I think in this case, it's actually important because you're talking about the inner right. workings of the most important newspaper on the planet. Right. And it's not just about what's happening at the New York Times. These, the, what Barry described is unfolding in institutions all over America, not just in, in media, but in tech and in, in academia, this, um, this, you know, quote unquote civil war, she got called out by, 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 I think a Times colleague is being insensitive for using the term civil war um, when like there are actual, you know, war reporters at the Times. Um, but this is, this is being replicated all over the country. It's not just about the New York Times. Right. So, which I guess leads into the, the main first thing, which is that you and I, broadly speaking, agree that she is pointing to a real thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, let's explore this a little because I also want to explain like why I think her framing is a little off. But but overall, the dynamic she's describing at the base level of different norms between sort of factions in an institution is playing out in multiple places. I used to work at New York Magazine. When I was there, I did not experience this. Since I left, I've heard stories. And The Spectator just ran an article about some drama involving Andrew Sullivan which was congruent with rumors I'd heard that basically staffers there were really mad at him for his columns, which there's controversy with Sullivan that predates his time at New York Magazine. The stuff he's written for New York Magazine is not particularly controversial. Like the, the, you could say it's center right in some cases or chimes in on the wrong side of journalistic controversies. But in my view, this is another example where like when you look at what he's written versus the uh, employee uprising, they're at different levels. And, and this spectator column said that, um, the Spectator article said that there's now sort of a, a it was phrased very unclearly. The version of the, the rumor I heard was that a group of younger staffers can now have some sort of veto power over what he writes in a departure from usual editorial practices there. That was the version I heard. The Spectator communicated that a bit unclearly. But that's the sort of thing that seems to be going on. There were also two Vox journalists who for the first time publicly tweeted basically saying they think that there's something to this sort of anti-PC campus culture critique. And what happened when they did that? <laughs> they immediately started talking to a lot of people behind the scenes, I can only assume. Uh, one of them, Herman Lopez, I think it's Herman, not German. Um, I believe he deleted his tweets. Matt Iglesias, who's a bit more senior, he's sort of in that layer of founding Vox types with, with Ezra Klein and Dylan Matthews and others. I don't think he deleted it. I think he's just sort of in a little bit of don't give a fuck mode based on his public tweets. Um, the point is there's strong pushback saying what the hell is Barry talking about? This isn't happening. A bunch of, after Barry tweeted this, a bunch of her colleagues at the New York times responded uh, just apparently just livid and said that a, it wasn't happening or B she got the details wrong. Like she said something about how it's a generational divide. And so a bunch of people said, well, I'm 40 and I'm, you know, I'm, in favor of young people or whatever. Um, but I mean, what she's describing, what I saw play out in a, on a very smaller level at the stranger. And it was a generational divide. I mean, I like, I think everybody who is like under 36 at the paper thought that I was like a literal Nazi um, with a couple of exceptions and but people over 40 generally liked me. Um, so you know, it's not it's not the same thing, but this is a generational divide. Like you can even see this in polling, in polling of of how you know younger generations feel about things like free speech compared to older generations. Yeah, 
I mean, can you say, we've talked about this a little, but I think in terms of the stranger's approach to covering important issues, how does that disrupt your ability to do your job or, or some other journalist's ability to do their jobs? Well, uh, just for instance, I was told basically that I wasn't allowed to write about trans stuff. For listeners who don't know, I, before I started at The Stranger as a staffer, the reason I got hired there basically was because I wrote a piece on detransition in 2017 and there was this like massive outcry about it. And it wasn't like a, an opinion piece. It was deeply reported and it, it was like, I thought, measured and I got lots of like the, the voices of happily trans people in the piece it was actually it actually had trans sensitivity readers as as did mine by the way when I wrote a oh, did piece. It? yeah no one no one cared they just assumed yeah it didn't. yeah and then and then there was this like massive outcry where people were like literally burning stacks of the paper um and it you know changed the the outcry from that like really changed the course of my life in in some ways um but after that, I, I really didn't write about trans stuff that often because once I got hired because it was just not kind of worth worth it. I was like kind of scared to do it. Um, but, you know, I, I like comment on this stuff all the time. And, I, and at one point I was told by an editor that they just didn't want me to write about trans stuff, which also meant that they didn't want me to write about the reaction to trans stuff. So, for instance, Megan Murphy was um, coming to Seattle for a for a talk at the public library. Megan Murphy, who's a Canadian feminist who was banned from Twitter for, among other crimes, tweeting men are not women. Um, and so I wanted to cover, you know, the the drama and the and the whole process, people trying to get this get this event banned. It really overlapped with my interests and in, which are mostly internet bullshit, free speech, these sort of hot button cultural issues. Um, and I was told not to go to the protest or not to go to the event, um, not to cover it. They wouldn't publish what I wrote about it. Uh, initially, I ended up sort of figuring out a workaround to get some work published about it. But, you know, it was just, I was told, like, you can't, you can't cover this, um, which is <laughs> troubling. Yeah. And, and my version of that is a little bit different, but I think is also revealing in, in a separate way, which is I, I wrote a long piece for The Atlantic, not just about detransitioners, about the whole issue of, of what youth gender dysphoria care should look like, what the assessment process should look like similar to yours, and, and I thought your piece was great, um, by the way, it, no, there was no sense in which the piece was anti-trans or anti-transition. We went out of our way to point out the truth, which is that trans people have major barriers to hormones, to surgery, to healthcare that in some cases they need just to live. Mm-hmm. There was a, a two-pronged response to that that I think shows how the, the social dynamics in journalism work. The emails I got were overwhelmingly positive. I got many yep. emails from parents saying who were not transphobic by any means, who were just wanted to know how to help their kids and to address a rapidly evolving issue. They said my article was very helpful. There were a few critical emails too. They were tended to be sane and polite, and I, I responded to them when I could. On Twitter, it was an overwhelming just outpouring of outrage that made it sound like what I had published was a hate crime. There was also there were a series of hit pieces in places like uh, Slate, New York Times, major outlets, and they that fucking Jezebel piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, so there were pieces that got basic factual issues wrong. So, for example, my opinion on this one aspect of trans healthcare um, is that I think adults should just be able to get hormones if they want them. There's a little complexity there. That's my view. That's what I said in the paper. Multiple outlets, including the Times and Jezebel, said that I said the opposite of that, which is like not something you could fuck up if you read the piece. What was the headline of the Jezebel piece? Something like, what the fuck is wrong with Jesse Sigel? 
what's Jesse Single's fucking deal? Okay, so you know, now that I have you here, Jesse Single, what's your fucking deal? What's funny is that is such an important and rich and deep question. <laughs> And they asked it in the most like boring context possible. Like, what's your deal? I wrote a 12,000 word piece that I phrased mushily because we were so worried about exactly this response. Anyway, the point of all this, and I'm not trying to to dwell on my own stuff because I think that piece overall, I'm proud of it. And I actually think on net, it was good for my career. I would have said that until like a week ago. But now you have a podcast, a hit podcast. Yeah, exactly. I have an award-winning podcast. Editors do not care that... I got dozens, probably hundreds by now, of nice emails behind the scenes. It doesn't matter. What they care about is what other staffers, other editors, other people are saying on Twitter. They are much more attendant to the incentives of of their own peer network than readers. This can explain some coverage of trans issues more broadly, where there is a very narrow window of acceptable opinion, even on subjects that are genuinely complicated, like uh, trans athletes in high school. You do not see that covered in mainstream outlets in a way that reflects widespread public opinion because you don't want to get dragged by Slate. You don't want to get dragged by Jezebel. Most importantly, you don't want a group of your young staffers coming after you. And and people always get this twisted. I'm not saying like a 25-year-old associate editor at Jezebel has power in some absolute sense. In fact, their position is very precarious. They do have power to make their employer's life publicly difficult. Yeah. I mean, the incentives to write about difficult topics in any way that doesn't sort of toe the whatever the current party line is, is so low because it could be actually bad for your career. It, I mean, it can be good for your career. I will say like uh, the backlash against my piece on detransition was absolutely good for my career. And there's a lot of irony there. You know, I think like the, you know, people put up stickers around Seattle calling me a turf and a Nazi, actually good for my career because every time somebody fucking saw that and like actually took, you know, took the time to Google me and read the piece. They, what they saw was like a balanced non-transphobic piece, right? Like it just, it brought me way more attention than I, that I had ever had professionally. And so these people who were basically trying to destroy me really fucking failed to do it by just like, if they had just ignored it, nothing would have happened. You know, I probably never would have gotten the job as a stranger. Um, I never would have had a bigger platform. I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast, but the absolute freak out about it benefited me. That said, it's so stressful to, to like go through these experiences that it makes it like you got to have like either balls of steel or no shame to be able to like take the heat, you know, and I think I'm in sort of the latter category um, because it's just really difficult to like be in a position where thousands of people and a lot of your colleagues are yelling at you because of something that you've put a lot of work into. It's incredibly unpleasant. And, and I think at the moment we can both say that despite all the bullshit, it was a net positive for us. I'm not sure that would be true for others. And and if you were, for example, younger and less established or like, you know, you had Dan Savage behind you, which is a real thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having, I had institutional support. I did not have support among colleagues, but I had institutional support. Yeah. It's, it's, the social dynamics are really bad. It also, you know, as lucky as we've been, one thing, and I don't want to focus too much on us. I'm going to broaden this out in a minute, but as fascinating as the two of us are, mm-hmm. one luxury we did not have that I think would make this easier. If you can go the full blown, like, okay, I've been canceled. I support Trump now. Political correctness has gone too far. There's like a real market opportunity there to go the Dave Rubin right. route. He's got a bestseller now. Oh, Jesus, kill me. Um, the problem is, like, I guess my political views were sort of 
two set in my they've changed in certain nuanced ways but i'm still like by any reasonable standard very much on the left that informs the way i see the world and there's there's a huge market for the for the anti-sjw dave rubin uh i'm deplorable now thing that i would never ever do under in a million years there's much less room for and shrinking room which is part of why we're talking about this for people in our position who are like no, like we need progressive journalism that isn't just chanting Dude. mantras all the time. Okay, can I jump to my my problem with the framing? Yeah. Okay, so my problem with Barry's framing, there are a couple of things. First of all, some people viewed what she was saying as a live tweet of an ongoing New York Times town hall that I want to get into later in the show. That wasn't my sense at all. I thought she was just talking about the general situation. Was that was that your read? Yeah, for sure. I I didn't I, I don't know that she was live tweeting anything. I mean, I knew that I know there was a town hall, but I don't know that the timing lines up. So there was at least one editor that tweeted like this 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 is completely inaccurate in light of the town hall meeting Barry is apparently tw- live tweeting, but I so that was just sort of like a rumor that spun off from this that I think was false. That said, her particular choice of framing, which relies on John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, I have a lot of respect for them both, some disagreement. We talked about this uh, an episode or two ago. Making this about safetyism, I think, undercuts her own argument uh, for a few reasons. One is, there's definitely an element of safetyism to the claim that by publishing this column, you put Black journalists, including time staffers, at risk. That is that is an example of safetyism. The problems here aren't really about safetyism, and and one downside of of conjuring safetyism as like the explanatory thing here is like I think there's a lot of safetyism on the right too. I mean, you know, people freaking out when they want when Muslims want to build a mosque in their town, a million other examples, culture panics, or like or uh, Kaepernick wanting to kneel, like like that's a, th- a a threat to the public, is you know, in some way. That's a perfect example. If you if you freak out at a guy kneeling to nonviolently protest, you can't then complain about safetyism. I'm not talking about Barry, of course. I think Barry's pretty pretty sturdy on on free speech stuff, but safetyism's everywhere, and and so I understand why people might say, you know, it's raw, it's weird to to make this about safetyism. To me, the stronger argument goes something like this. Even if you're a progressive, even if you're coming from a place where you're going to, at the end of the day, you are very sympathetic to the protesters' goals. If you cover this from the point of view that you can't ask certain questions about the effectiveness of tactics or whether violence could be counterproductive or or even broader questions like the, the relationship between race and class in terms of who gets caught up in the criminal justice system, a, you're not really doing your job as a journalist because it's journalist jobs to to broaden people's perspectives and, and bring them stuff they might not otherwise have access to. And B, you know, if you're going to be an activist journalist, which is what most journalists are now, there's a real chance that you're kneecapping your own cause because a lot of these questions we don't have answers to. We don't know exactly like what the threshold is at which looting or rioting leads to a backlash, violent versus nonviolent protesting. There are all these complicated questions and what's going on now is that like seemingly overnight a narrative it's determined this is the narrative it's sort of hegemonic you have to stick to this narrative so like right after the protesting started it just it was decided you can't really criticize the looting or rioting and to me the public watches what's going on and and you can't just have a subset of journalism a big important subset of it Ignoring the fact that some people are pissed off about rioting and some small business owners are having their livelihoods destroyed, just that this culture of you can't say this, you can't say that, it hurts journalism. And if you're an activist journalist, it hurts the cause. So I think a 
broader, more principled argument maybe would have served her point better. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not sure that what she was describing was entirely safetyism. And I think that concept also, I think that, I think that the people, let's say the people who, you know, tweeted in support of their black colleagues who were going to be hypothetically harmed by um, by Tom Cotton's op-ed in the Times, um, as we discussed last week, there was this, like, after the op-ed was published, uh, there was a rash of, of Times journalists all tweeting in unison, uh, this piece is going to put black journalists in danger. And I, I think that is actually an example of safetyism. Um or just or maybe catastrophizing, but I I agree with you. I don't think that the larger issue is safetyism at the times or anywhere else. I think the largest issue, the larger issue, is is it's groupthink and this shrinking of liberal values or this um this movement uh, this move away from you know liberal values. Um, there's this, like for instance, I, I spoke to this woman yesterday who uh, grew up in Romania and she was telling me about their sort of version of the cultural revolution there, and. And there were a lot of parallels to what what's happening here in the United States, really parallels that I found like deeply troubling. And it's not the same thing. Like this was a communist, a communist authoritarian country. All these directives were were top down. And I think what's happening in the United, in the United States right now is bottom up. This is coming from the culture, not from not from the government. Um, but things like they would have these struggle sessions where people self-criticize, you know, and, and it was mandatory. So that's different. People are voluntarily doing it now. Um, but she, she told me that one of the hard, one of the, one of the hardest things about living during that time and, and where she sees the parallels now is that this basic idea that you should discuss ideas on their merits and not based on who is making the idea. This is a liberal value. And and that is shrinking right now. We're losing that value. And if you lose that value, you can't even really have these conversations. If one person's talking about the ideas and the other person's just saying, no, you can't say this if you are X demographic or you have the wrong opinion or whatever, um, just immediately resort to ad hominem attacks. And it just shuts down all conversation. Um, and I think I think that's a much much more indicative of what's happening at the times and in media than safetyism. It's identitarianism sort of run, run amok. Yeah, no, that's, that's very well put. And the, also the, the sort of social dynamics that emerge and, and the, the times, uh, again, like, I guess I'm running some small risk of, of pissing people off there, but I, I think the times was sort of embarrassing itself in public for much of the last week. When, when you see this sorts of stuff being claimed and, Vice ran a piece about the town hall where, where you saw staffers unnamed just just making claims that do not line up with the content of the column itself. And this is a style of rhetoric where person A says some dogs bite people sometimes and person B says, oh, so you're saying all dogs should be put down, you monster. It's It's a style of argument. Of course, there's always been bad faith arguments there's a whole concept of like logical fallacy blah 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 it goes out back thousands of years this particular style is very twitter friendly because on twitter one person gets a brief chance to say a quick thing the other person gets a brief response and and often it's just that quick ping ping and then it's pretty clear who quote unquote won although people might disagree on that and seeing this turn in professional journalism and commentary toward this style of discourse where you do not respond to what the person actually said, but you responded to the worst, most uncharitable interpretation of it, it makes for a lot of unreadable garbage. And it also just completely 
decimates anyone's ability to discuss important issues carefully. The Times has now amended the column itself. There's an editor's note on it. Um, and there was some reporting uh, from, I'm not sure who wrote this, but there was some reporting like, you know, media criticism, not even criticism. There was some reporting in the Times on the process of how this like op-ed saw the light of day. And they just like threw this like apparently 25-year-old editor under the bus um, in a way that I just find like, God, like so fucked up. Like take responsibility, you know? Um, what do you think is going to happen? I I think it's entirely possible that James Bennett is going to be pushed out from the Times. Yeah, They're saying now they're, they're like rethinking their opinion section. And James Bennett, for people who don't know, is the editor. Yeah, and he, he's much reviled as sort of a... Um maybe sort of two centrist contrarian uh, neoliberal old older white guy. I don't think he's that old, but he's he's not he's not he's not beloved by like time staffers and people in that orbit. Right, because uh, they published, you know, a column by Tom Cotton and then 15 columns about why why white people and black people shouldn't be friends by you know by, from an anti-racist perspective. But that's the thing is is there can be I don't, so I don't know what's going to happen. I think Bennett could be pushed out. Also, like one of the things that came out was he hadn't read the column. I heard the number I heard was they published 30 things a day. I, I think someone at the top should probably read every column. I'm not sure that's unusual. I think what disturbed me in the sense of like, um, look, on the show, we're, we're sometimes going to use like language about like, you know, cultural revolution or show trial. I don't think any of our listeners are silly enough to think we mean this is exactly the same thing. We're referring to well-known human dynamics. There was something a little bit show trialish in this the the note you mentioned that they um I guess it's not uh, did they append it if it's at the beginning it's like now literally at the top which is fairly unusual a lengthy statement the statement made it out as though this had been some major editorial error that's unusual for a couple of reasons one is they have yet to to really point out that much in the column that's false to the extent there's factual questions they mostly center around the idea that Cotton overrated the role of Antifa. When he mentions Antifa, he links to a thing by Attorney General Barr. Barr himself is probably overestimating the role of Antifa. But the point is, as people have pointed out, the standards in that column were usual general time standards. When the Times is running a leftist perspective, they have arguments that are just as silly and just as out there as anything in the Tom Cotton column. And I have experience with this because the one time I was mentioned in a Times column, they got my view on trans stuff exactly 180 degrees wrong. They let me write a letter to the editor, but it was amazing to me the column was published. It pretty clearly wasn't fact checked. So, and did they, did they? So, did they um, correct it? No, I mean this is what's messed up. Is I, I felt like I couldn't pressure them to correct it because I needed. I've written for their page a couple times. God knows if I ever will again now. But I felt like I had to stay in their good graces, so I couldn't push for a correction just because they are a powerful institution when it clearly warranted one in their. You know, they let me write a letter to the editor that appeared in print right away, but it was just sort of an astoundingly misleading column uh, in which I was sort of misrepresented to a lot of people. So they don't, this idea that this was some sudden departure, that there was something so unusual about the column as to warrant this lengthy statement is disturbing because really what they're doing is a version of a show trial where they're, they're or a struggle session where they're showing, saying, not really to the world, but to their own staffers, this was a horrible mistake. It won't happen again without explaining exactly how that's the case. And if we come to a situation where controversial articles lead to these like public self, it's just not good. This has been a very unusual editorial process. And the National Review ran a piece 
telling the cotton camp side of the story. And it sounds like they make a stronger evidentiary case that this was actually the usual process and there was nothing rushed about it. I I saw this uh, floating around Twitter and I, I don't know if it's been addressed by the paper or by anybody else, but people were saying that the Times pitched Cotton on this and not the other way around. I think it was something more like Cotton wanted to one, run one article and the Times came back with, why don't you focus in on this one aspect of your pitch? Okay. I think that's okay, so n- normal. That's an absolutely normal editorial process. Yeah. So... You and I have both experienced this when our articles are controversial, where suddenly people will, it's a, a selective, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? So selective appeals for evidence. So if the, if the Times ran a piece tomorrow making a, a politically popular claim about immigrants or, or the riots or anything else, no one no one would worry about the factual problems with that the same way they do now someone raised the example on the fifth column which is <laughs> covering this in much the same way we are someone pointed out that like in a news article there is a sentence implying that covid deaths and police violence pose similar threats to black people in america they're both horrible things but like that is completely off by by a lot so to me what what bugs me is there's a disingenuous here where suddenly we're, we're worried about accuracy in this very different way when it, it's the tail wagging the dog, the column offended you. So then you back into an argument about the facts of it. Did you see the column published a couple of days ago in which a, um, a black writer uh, who has a uh, apparently has a book coming out in a month wrote that he was worried that he was going to not survive to see his, his book come out because of police violence? He made that claim. Yeah, it's and it's just like statistically just it, it might be a genuine fear, but statistically it's just like he's more likely to die from COVID than he is from police violence or getting hit by a car or any array of, of, um, you know, of, of accidents would be more of a risk than statistically more of a risk than police violence. And they published it. They also, in the same column, this guy um, wrote that, like, it was like a, a, a list of things that white people can do to, um, to, you know, further this anti-racist movement. And one of them was if you contact, text your friends and family, and if they are unwilling to go to protest or to donate money to Black Lives Matter and, and related causes to cut those people out of your life. So just from like a, you know, perspective of like changing hearts and minds, I cannot imagine a worse way to do it than to cut everybody out of your life who disagrees with you. It's just not effective. Like, you can't hold your 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 presence in people's lives hostage if you want them to change. Well, I, it's also, I mean, there's just a, we both got a, a touching email from a guy. We, we won't say any details, but he has serious mental health problems and, and problems with suicidality. And he's worried about how he'll, if he'll be seen as, you know, not down with the cause enough, should he go to this this protest? I mean, imagine... This is, of course, an extreme example, but but everyone has their own shit going on in their life. The idea of cutting someone out of their life, your life, if they won't come with you to a protest or or weigh the during a, during pandemic. a pandemic, like yes, right. So so the other side of this was Barry's tweet storm was taken as a insanely offensive breach of Times decorum, and the subsequent pile on of her which included seemingly half the masthead at the Times, or not the masthead, but just just many rank-and-file staffers, suggested she'd committed some grievous wrong. I, you know, I'm sure there are ways she could have framed it better. Maybe she should have done it in a column. She didn't name anybody. She posited an age divide that is actually there. And the day before she wrote that, or up to the minute before she wrote that, 
a huge swath of the Times staffers were criticizing rather harshly the editorial page's decision. So the the sudden switch of the rules where like suddenly it's the case you cannot criticize your colleagues, which is exactly what they were doing. The low point of this was when Goldie Taylor, who's an editor at large at the Daily Beast, tweeted why she still got her teeth. That meaning meaning someone should punch Barry Weiss's teeth out because she issued this fairly milquetoast critique of her younger colleagues. And look, again... In which case she, in which she didn't name a single person. She didn't name anybody. And again, I'm open to the fact that there might be other tensions there I'm unaware of. I think there's a lot of resentment of, over the fact that opinion staffers can um, tweet more freely and openly than news ones. There could be stuff going on under the radar we're unaware of. It was so obviously the case that suddenly the entire staff seemingly just adopted an entirely different norm, and they all felt like they had to be the part of in a part of this sort of two minutes hate thing that comes across as incredibly creepy, coming from the people we trust with delivering us the news and with truth. And it it was bizarre to watch. And what worries me is that I think everyone involved thinks that they were doing a good thing because they get an endless ping, ping, ping of validation from Twitter about it. They have no idea how this looks to the rest of the world. Right. And then people who maybe otherwise think Barry's right or would be happy to defend her feel terrified to do it because of the backlash. Right. And then and then these guys say, well, no one in the newsroom came to me with issues about culture. Why do you think they didn't come to you with issues? Like you, every day they see you ridiculing people with like, often what are fairly slight disagreements. It's so bad faith to constantly bash and drag people who disagree and then say, huh, why isn't anyone coming to me with their concerns? Well, have you, I mean, have you been getting emails from staffers at other publications talking about serious, like similar issues in the last week? I have, yeah. Um, staffers and a, and a couple of freelancers who I've talked about just this, what Barry talked about it. I mean, maybe not a civil war, but a culture war within these, um, within these, within these publications. And it's fucking terrifying. Yes. And and what percentage of them do you think would ever say something publicly about this? Zero. The answer to that is zero. Yeah. People are terrified to speak up, um, which is why you and I are such brave truth tellers on our podcast. <laughs> 9 11 With nothing to lose because we don't have jobs. The, um, I mean, the, the communications I'm getting from people, it sounds like they're going out of their minds because you know, this isn't all like people working in newsrooms. It's just like people who feel like they cannot say anything about this stuff. And these are journalists. These are professional journalists. I know there are time staffers incredibly unhappy with what's going on. I don't think James Bennett is hearing from them. I don't think the times are tweeting. I think you and I can both say based on our experiences, which the whole catch 22 here is we can't share these stories. Barry, broadly speaking, is correct. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, if this were just the New York Times, like who gives a shit? But this is really indicative of trends happening in, um, you know, in the culture and all over America. This is happening. I get emails from people, especially in in, in acad- academia, who experience this stuff, it's particularly education programs. Um, that seems to be like, but not just education programs, also STEM fields. That you know, the same things happening. Um, people just terrified to to say to say like basic truths that a couple of years ago maybe wouldn't have made anyone blink an eye. And um, and now it's just like verboten. I definitely have gotten more emails from professors than journalists overall. But like, yeah, as soon as you cast a line, like there was these, there are these big social justice wars in young adult fiction that, that we can get into at length in a future episode. But as soon as I literally just tweeted, like, you know, if you have concerns about this, about the culture, 
uh, I'm happy to publish them and keep them anonymous. I got many emails and a lot of them, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but a lot of them were from people of color. Like it, it was like, it would be from like a, a South Asian guy who's like, all these white editors want me to write about my identity. I'm not interested in my identity. And I'll, I'll post, I'll, I'll sort of post my receipts on that. I'll post the show notes. But these were people who were like, I was able to confirm their identity. So wherever you cast a line, you will find people, there's just, there's something going on. And I've been trying to frame it in such a measured way because I do not want to go down like the cultural Marxists have taken over our institutions. It's it's more subtle than that. But if you have a situation where people really within institutions don't, don't feel safe, like expressing basic opinions. And I I think frankly, conservatives should feel safe to express opinions too on, on most issues, but we're talking about staunchly center left people or sorry, we're talking about like firmly lefty people uh, that's really bad, and that's really corrosive to institutions. And the the sort of spiral of silence is real. Did, did, have I ever told you about my own struggle session? I don't think so. So after the the D-trans piece came out, and there was this huge uproar, uh, members of self appointed leaders of Seattle's trans community um, invited the a couple of staff or like the reporting team and me, the higher ups to it to attend a meeting. And so they said that this meeting was going to be about, uh, about how the stranger could better source stories from the trans community. Right. So that's what I was told. And I agreed to go to this because I felt like if I didn't, it would just look bad. Um, and so it was held at a, at like on a, on like a rooftop bar. So I got there and I was like sitting in a corner, just like being kind of quiet and people like it was me and I think four, three other people from the stranger. So like three reporters and an editor, none of whom were uh, like I directly worked with. I mean, I did work directly with them, but we weren't in the sort of the same, they were the news team. I was not. Um, so I was sitting, I was like, sitting among this group of people and like more trans people would come. And, and so every time some like new person would come, we would like have to go through a round of introducing ourselves and like everybody stating their pronouns. So that kept happening over and over and over. So the ship stretching out. And so at first it started out being about like how we could, you know, um, you know, better source stories from the trans community, which is unconventional, I would say, or not, not an experience I've ever, ever had like a big group meeting with these people before, but it started out like that. And then uh, maybe like 10 minutes into it, a trans woman stood up and was like, why are we talking about this? We're here to talk about that shit article. And then everybody started snapping. And then it just f- went off. Just people just started basically yelling at me. I was accused of, um, uh, someone said that that after my article was published, uh, calls to the to the like trans lifeline, the suicide helpline spiked. I was accused of, of literally being complicit in the deaths of trans people. People started crying. Um, someone left and then another person said like, I have to go support her. She's crying or whatever. Oh, and I should also mention, this was entirely trans women. There was not a single trans man there, all trans women. Um, so I was just sitting there like being fucking yelled at my colleagues didn't say a word, didn't say a word, all of whom they all subsequently left the paper. And then, uh, then I got laid off, but did not say a word. Um, so I just like sat there and absorbed it. And I had taken like a, like a beta blocker or Xanax or something before this meeting, because I knew it was going to be difficult and it didn't help. I was just sitting there just like shaking, shaking. Um, and then eventually I I just left. I was like, I can't, you know, like I, I'm not going to sit here and be yelled at. Um, so I left. It was fucking weird. That's really messed up. Did you did you you decided to go to that or did your editor just nudge you toward it? 
they asked me to go you know i felt obligated to do it um and i really wish that i hadn't although you know what actually maybe i don't because i don't know how many people can also say that they were a subject of a fucking struggle session um so a unique experience that i had sorry that sounds really unpleasant and it also you know it there's, there's nothing wrong with with a trans person saying they have a problem with your with your article and i'm sure my article had flaws and i responded there's such a difference between what good faith critique looks like and the claim that you know this is literally putting people's lives in i mean to to invoke the idea that there was a spike in suicides in the in the metro seattle area because of an article about detransition that was pro transition in the stranger is that's despicable i mean you don't you don't fuck around with claims about suicide that's horrible right and it's also i mean suicide is fucking contagious like even saying shit like that among a group of people who say they're particularly vulnerable seems to me dangerous if you actually care about trans lives maybe don't like spread false rumors about an epidemic of suicides there was just new data that i mean it didn't answer the question dispositively but it looked at a bunch of of youth suicides which is you know one of the saddest subjects imaginable and it just it suggested that among LGBT uh, teens who killed themselves, bullying was more likely to be a factor. But the overall numbers did not suggest that there's this this horrible risk. I think any kid dealing with mental health problems, um, you need to keep such a close eye on. But it, it doesn't help to spread the idea of of threats that aren't sort of, you know, uh, statistically valid or don't appear to be. I don't think it not just doesn't help. I mean, I think it actively hurts. You know, parents oh, say things like, uh, you know, it's better to have a, you know, a, a, a trans child than a dead child. The implication being that if you, you know, if your child isn't isn't allowed to, I guess, to transition, if you don't, you know, affirm their gender identity, that your child is going to kill themselves. How damaging is that for, for actual trans children to hear that, that there are two options. One is transition and the other is suicide. What pisses me off so much about it is like if if a trans kid went to a a therapist and I've you know I've interviewed a lot of therapists who work with trans kids they they would that's such a horrible message like if if your parents this is like a fifteen year old who will be on their own in three years God willing or maybe a, a two years to say yeah if your parents don't accept who you are uh, you're probably going to kill yourself I mean that's like that's borderline criminal and the american psychological association has released guidelines saying you shouldn't valorize suicide you shouldn't make suicide out to be simple this is all cuz there's a body of research showing that suicide literally moves through social networks so the the moral paragons telling us our work is dangerous could literally be killing people that's not a claim i use lightly i don't want, i don't want to fall for the safetyism thing myself but there's there's very solid research about suicide contagion so this stuff's a little bit more complicated than the idea that an article looking at the nuances of transition and detransition could kill yourself. There, there has to be a higher level discussion than that, and they're not. And that's why journalism is screwed. And that's why people are in droves realizing they cannot trust outlets that I hold very near and dear to my heart and that I have written for and loved. And uh, this whole thing is very heartbreaking. Like I said at the top of the show, it's a complete collapse of institutional authority. Except for Blocked and Reported. This is the one institution you can trust. We need to go the full cult route. Like, yeah, it, I'm, I'm ready. If you if you pay $5 a month, we are the only ones who can pull back the veil and, and show you the truth. Yeah, for uh, the low, low price of $5 a month. No one else will tell you that lesbians like Katie have an extra bone in their spine. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Blocked and Reported, your home for lesbian race science. <laughs> Bigger brains too, and bigger hands for for gripping the softball. I mean, I would actually believe that, but uh, I have tiny hands, so I'm the exception. <laughs> 
Dude, this is all so fucked up. It's so uh it it's I'm glad to be able to vent about it, but I yeah. Uh man. Yeah. If you uh if you've experienced stuff like that, send us your emails. We want to hear about it. Yeah, look, I we were um the Sullivan thing was sort of an open secret for a while. I I we will definitely not um tell anybody. Um we I we just want you know people to be more open about this. We also want to like debunk the idea that what's going on is like you know, someone of the Times newsroom wants to be like, oh, racism's good, and that that's the opinion being suppressed because that's how this is caricatured, and that's not what's going on at all. So send us your emails. Give us massive sums of money so that we can bring the truth to people. We're basically like itinerant preachers from the 1800s at this point, just going from town to town. Mm-hmm. Snake handling. <laughs> Our snakes are... We're snake handling the truth. I was I was telling my friend, uh, talking to my friend about the podcast, and his his joke about it was we should call it the truth booth. Like, welcome to the truth booth. <laughs> we'll give out red pills. I think maybe it's time for us to take a uh, quick break and come back for our patrons and talk about J.K. Rowling, which I'm sure will be a more lighthearted subject. Did you have anything else to add about the collapse of everything around us? Actually, there is one more thing I would like to add because I'm sure that someone will bring it up. So Barry, when she was in college, was apparently, and I haven't ever really dug into this, but was apparently involved in some effort to get a teacher fired or deplatformed or something. I don't know. I've never talked to Barry about this. I don't know what the, the backstory is, but I would just like to say that's bad. Um, I think I think Barry would also today probably say that that's bad. Um, and maybe I think she should address it at some point because this this uh, criticism always comes up um, when she's in the news. Um, so deplatforming and getting people fired for having different opinions than you is bad. Yeah, this was about this had something to do with a, a professor who was supposedly anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. I can say as a liberal Jew, people sometimes conflate those. I don't know the details. I have the exact same thought as you that she should address this. I don't think I don't think stuff we do in college defines us, but she she should address at this point because it does go against her current sort of uh, free speech persona. I yeah, she should talk about it. But I also like it's it sort of I think that in many cases is, is the strongest punch they have because her columns tend to not be nearly as crazy as people think. So there's a reason right. they focus on this this thing. Right, and I mean. The shit people did in college, I, yeah, I, I do not think that the things that we did in college should really be held against us. I mean, it, she should she should address it. But I mean, for instance, I played ultimate frisbee in college. I I don't want to podcast with you anymore. It was only once. In in my, I feel like all the ultimate kids. There's this weird thing going on where they're often like the coolest ones, like having the best parties and having the most sex, even though they're like typecast as yeah, nerds. I don't know about that. I don't know about coolest anything. Well, I mean, cool, like, like not like, like at Michigan, it wasn't like, you know, the football players were cool. This is a different, more accessible level of cool. Right. Um, well, I'm just going to go ahead and re-educate you. The queers are always the coolest. Double points if you're BIPOC, non-binary. Oh, God, I'm so tired, Katie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's, uh, anything else? Or should we, should we do the Patreon episode? No, let's do the Patreon episode. Um, yeah. And if you guys want to get access to that, just, you know, give us your heart and cash. The only path to truth. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, there are no internal problems with the culture of journalism, and no, that is not a laser sight on my forehead. That is just a weird birthmark. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you knock out Barry Weiss's teeth, they're just going to grow back. <laughs>